When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast. The one and only. Though we have a lot of podcasts at Book Riot. This is the only one called The. The, the. I, you know, I go both ways on the. I, I, either, either. I don't know. Mm. I'm one of those people. Um, it's yeah, a little unusual. I do, yeah, I do the same thing. Maybe it's the Midwesternness. Yeah. Either, either go. I th- that one does go both ways. I wonder. I I don't know enough about it. I wonder if it's contextual. Like, I wonder if it depends upon the previous mm. sound of the word you said before, or upcoming the next one, like yeah. H. I don't know. Uh, there, there there might be some uh, governing principle to I the have... uh, bifurcation. My either pronunciation. <laughs> I've never paid attention to it, but I mm. bet. There is the Book Riot podcast makes me feel like the Ohio State University. Yeah, the, the Ohio State <laughs> <University>. <laughs> yeah it's it's true. Um, we talk about books and reading and news related to it. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we are it's August. Um, the the dog days. I, I think yep. now is the dog days for sure. August, we have established it is the dog days. Yeah, I think it's you know the the precondition, the heuristic for whether or not it's the dog days, the conditional is if it is August, then it is the dog days. But <laughs> it doesn't necessarily need to be August for it to be the dog days. So uh, let's do that. A couple follow up type things. I already got some emails about um, listeners' favorite books they've read this summer. Keep those coming. We're going to record our summer reading wrap up show next week, so we've got a few more days after this podcast drops. Um, probably until Wednesday the 12th. If you want to send us a couple more, we'll shout some out, see what's there, some interesting titles already. As always, um, wait, I, I always think, oh, what book of 2020 is going to show up a lot of times? And it's just, you know, a lot of backlist because people mm. read a lot of backlist too. Uh, let's, I guess we should do a sponsor because I think our f- next follow-up might take a couple of minutes. <laughs> you want to do a, sh- a shout-out real quick before we hit the first sponsor? Oh, yeah, sure. I just wanted to shout out my friend, um, Amanda Myers, runs a podcast called Rising Summit. She is a health coach, wellness coach, yoga teacher, massage therapist. She does a little bit of everything. She's really amazing. Um, and she asked me to be on her show this week. So I was the um, the guest on her show. We talked about reading as a practice of self-care and as a form of like a way that you can fit it into your spiritual practice and also as a part of social justice, um, in addition to talking about some yoga and, you know, restorative stillness kinds of things. Um, the slug line I think is something like why it's important to sit still and be quiet and read a book sometimes. Mm. Um, so if that, uh, if you are in the center of my Venn diagram, <laughs> um, then you might want to check out the, that most recent episode of the rising summit podcast available on all your podcatchers of choice and, you know, poke through the other episodes. I had a really good time. It was a fun way to talk about books, um, from a different perspective than what we do here. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll take a quick break, come back and talk about uh, the show. Okay, got a couple um, emails about uh, Betsy Wolheim at uh, uh, DAW Books and how I guess we skipped over. I think I knew this when we were actually recording that mm-hmm. she's not merely an editor, or not only an editor, but also the president. Um, not only a member, but also the president of the yeah, Club for Men. I was just about to say that. Gosh, it's something, it's how marketing <laughs> works, I guess. Um, so... 
And uh, her her dad was David A. Wolheim, D-A-W, uh-huh. of D-A-W Books. And she's Got been it. president for about 35 years. So she ain't getting fired. Yeah, um, yeah that I was... <laughs> my response when you shared that information with me was like, well, now we know why she hasn't gotten fired yet. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I don't know anything else about the governing structure of DAW. I don't know if it's distributed by someone else or it's an imprint of something else at this point. Like it's been around long enough. I, I didn't go look up. It's hard enough to find out about an imprint and it's tangled relationships with other imprints. If there's a board or ownership group or anything else, but um, if your dad started the thing and you've been president for 35 years probably not as beholden to some other power that be that that is powers that be <laughs> powers that are boy i don't know how to get that one um so i you know i guess from a will she have a ch- have the same chair that probably maybe <laughs> suggests that she will does it lend any other color to the moment <laughs> though i guess is maybe a Honestly. more interesting question I think it does, but not in the way perhaps that some of the folks who reached out to us to correct us anticipated mm-hmm. that it might. Um, I think it makes it worse. I do like, too. The higher you are up the chain, the, the worse the bad behavior looks. And this is really bad. It's a, it's really, it's just really unprofessional and a huge violation of the trust of an author that you're working with. Um, doesn't matter what position you are, but it's the kind of thing that like is a little bit more understandable, if not fully excusable. If she were like a junior editor who shot her mouth off on Facebook, but for someone to be the president of their imprint and have been in the industry 35 years or more, like that's long enough to know better. You definitely know better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I think it makes it worse. <laughs> There's a who watches the watchman element, right? I mean, I guess that's what mm-hmm. you're kind of suggesting is once you get to a place where you have a lot of power and not as much accountability to anyone that's not yourself. Is there anyone that can give you a corrective? Is there anyone that can whisper in your ear, even if it's not your job saying, you know what, I'm not sure this is the way you should go. You really need to take a hard look at what's going on here. So um, I'm not sure, but uh, it makes it more interesting rather than less and more surprising, both more and less surprising to some degree. I think, a junior editor kind of person might not have the experience to know how bad something this, I mm-hmm. think, looks on the outside to people like us. On the other hand, probably wouldn't have the temerity to to to, to hazard this sort of an opinion in public, <laughs> right, too. Right. So I don't know how it comes out on the scale of probability this thing ever sees the light of day. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I was I was talking to Bob about it last night because I was telling him, like, I think this reaches into the kind of thing that is just interesting to people who aren't specifically Mm -hmm. book people because it's like just listen to this bad behavior thing that happened and knowing that she's the president we were sort of kicking around like well what do you do now if you're patrick rothfuss like you know there's if there's no getting her fired and if you don't want to work with her i was like i don't know maybe i would be tempted to like give back my advance break Mm -hmm. my contract and self-published the final thing on my own directly to all my fans who have been waiting for it. Yeah. I mean, if there is no work though, and there won't be for, right. some, you know, it's again, the central, well, not the central, but the, the instigating event here is that we ain't got no book. Um, and there's a lot of solutions that come that revolve around there being a book, but yeah, there, just... if there ain't no book, then I don't know where you go from there. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to assume 
he's been doing something. Um, that Newsweek piece from last week sort of investigated, like, you know, there are multiple places over the last few years where he's talked about what he's been working on and doing some of the writing. So there's like some piece of a book somewhere probably. Um, but yeah, you couldn't really fully get that restitution without the book being done. Um, I was also, oh, go ahead. I would say if I'm Patrick Rothfuss, this doesn't motivate me to finish any faster. (laughs) Sure. No, it, it wouldn't. Um, you know, if you're litigious by nature, I wonder if your agent and your lawyer have a case for I'm keeping my advance and breaking the contract based mm. on the po- I, I don't know what's what's uh, possible there. It did. I've been thinking about the case a lot because I don't really care. I, I am invested in the series, though. It's been I mean, to be honest, and this is no shade, just the truth. It's been so long. I don't really remember exactly where to pick mm. up on book three. Uh, you know, if the book three came out tomorrow how how much memory gymnastics would I go through to pick it up? I actually don't know the answer to that right now. But I think it's a fascinating um, array of explicit and implicit contracts are all the mm-hmm. way around, but between the publisher and author, between the author and readers. And then there's another factor we hadn't really talked about, and I even have a name for it, O'Neill's Razor, of I, I don't <laughs> start series until they're done, which isn't a great, which is not a great readerly model for supporting series, right? But I do wonder if high-profile cases like Martin and Rothfuss of not getting the books out in a way that I think any reader would consider reasonable, does it erode trust writ large in series? I don't know. Like, does it make Mm. less likely that readers like me, who have named stupidly a heuristic after themselves, um, (laughs) do more people like, you know what? That guy, O'Neill, his razor seems pretty sharp over there. Or anything like is like, you know, I'm not going to trust this new series because it may never come out. Like, people we know that... um, I'm trying to think of like, uh, uh, you know, Zen Cho and some other people, Mm. N.K. Jemisin, who are really good about or have been historically very good about having their books come out pretty predictably and reasonably for the amount of work it takes to do a book. Do they have, is there any eroding in their kind of readership or is it really a case by case basis? Like you you come to each author's, um, you know, banked uh, trust in, in, in producing the next book on its own. I'm just, I'm I'm interested. Yeah. That's a, I think it's a really interesting question. I was thinking a lot about genre series fans in particular, and Mm. like a lot of romance writers have really well-established patterns of like, you know, every six months there's a new book in their series and that's hard work to do. Two books a year is a, that's a lot of hard work. And a, a lot of those romance writers like are churning books out at that rate and have been for years. And so like, I I guess I'm interested too in the math of like, if you've read, I'm going to use Sarah McLean as an example, because she's one of these authors who has, you know, like two books a year, very reliably. If you've been reading Sarah McLean for like five years and like every six months, there's a book, are you more or less willing to extend some grace if at some point it takes a year or two years for the next book. Then in these cases where like the game of Thrones books came kind of far apart, just not like 15 years apart right? right. Um, or in the early days. And I don't remember how close together the King killer chronicles were, but there were only two mm-hmm. um, like how much experience do you have with that writer? What's your expectation for the speed? I think there's a, there are a lot of variables here is what we're talking about. Um, but it, it does make me wonder, like, I guess, folks listening, like 
if you're especially I would say sci-fi since we're mm. seeing that sci-fi and fantasy with King Killer and, and Game of Thrones, does this make you less likely to care by the time the final book comes out? Would you be less likely to begin a new series, like a big epic series like this where it takes several years between books now that you might be burned by two writers? Mm. What's the story? You can yeah, tell us your feelings yep, at podcast, podcast at com. That's us. Um, fascinating to, to see um, what the responses to that kind of a question might be. Um, I mean, I guess the, the other path forward for someone would be the Marilyn Robinson route, which is like that it's, I didn't even know we were reading a series, <laughs> right? Like, okay, here's one and here's another one. It's not, it's not a series in conventional sense because there's not like a plot cl- cliffhanger, I guess. Right. I guess what distinguishes a series between something, you know, a series of books set in the same universe, mm-hmm. um, I think that's probably a relevant What's a question. What's a set of four? A quatrology? Quartet. Quartet. Yeah, that would make sense. Quadrilogy. Quadrilogy. I'm, here, I'm just over here making up words for things. No, no, that you're not. <laughs> because a trilogy and a trio are different words, right? And they're used interchange. I mean, they're not used interchangeably. So I, I think quadrilogy. I think a, a, the the five one is tough. Pentology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, herpetology yeah. is seven and lizards. No, I'm just kidding. That's, uh, <laughs> that's not what that is. Uh, I would read a seven book series about, about lizards. lizards. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. I like that. Uh, let's get into this week in actual censorship news. Um, the DOJ is going after John Boylton, Bolton's royalties and his advance. We talked about this before where former National Security Advisor John Bolton has this really – it was best-selling. I haven't looked. It's it's not showing up toward the top of the book scan lists in uh, hardcover nonfiction. So as tends to be the case with these best-selling Trump books um, – they, they 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 burn out right they're they're they're, me, they're uh, meteors across mm-hmm. the sky um though I ha- i'd be curious to see what the mary trump book that was such an outlier anyway i'm getting uh, i'm diverting myself from the diversion um <laughs> that trump is trying to do i guess and at this point this is a so they're trying to get the royalties back based on a violation of a contractual agreement with the nsa blah 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 I think in in essence, I, I guess, is this hmm, maybe the question? Remember those old Letterman um, sketches? Is this something or nothing? Is this censorship yeah. or not censorship? I, I think there's a way that the de facto point of this is to prevent future books from coming out. But since this book is already out, I guess maybe I'd be hesitant to call it, for lack of a better term, capital C censorship. Does that make sense, Rebecca? Yeah, I, don't know if I you, think you it's I'm throwing down. There. Yes, I, I do. I hear you. I think that's the correct technical reading of this, like the book already exists and it's out in the world. So the book has not been censored, but it's like that thing where you tell, you know, employees of your company, like you can report a problem without fear of like reprisal or restitution. And, they're like the, the Trump administration was unsuccessful in blocking this book from existing. And so now they're punishing the mm. author for having done the thing that they wished he wouldn't do. And so I think it's both an, an act of retribution against Bolton as a like, we're still mad at you and we want this to cost you because you've done us harm, um, you know, reputational harm, if nothing else. And I think it's intended to be a warning to to future folks right. who might want to publish books like this. But the fact that the book exists and is out in the world and has already been a bestseller um, probably eats into that deterrent factor 
or the power of that deterrent if there if there is any to begin with. Well, that's what um, I was going to say. I mean, at some level, if if the, if the idea is we're going to sue everyone who publishes a book, but you lose every damn time that those those court cases, <laughs> at some point, it's no longer deterrent, right? It becomes table right. stakes in the Simon and Schuster and the Hachette or whoever's publishing a book like this. You know, sets aside some amount of money to to defend yeah, it, but knowing it's going to sell ten million copies, like. Okay, it's a cost of doing business, but this shit loses all the time, so it can't be a deterrent <laughs> anymore. Yeah, you kind of have to. I think we kind of have to assume that when they're sitting down, like when the publisher is sitting down to yeah. make a book deal with somebody like John Bolton, it, the conversation is in the room of like, well, you're. Mm-hmm. If they don't come after you to try to prevent this from coming out, they're definitely going to try to sue you after the fact. Right. <laughs> like right. someone is going to come after you and here is how we're going to approach those things. I would assume it's out there. I think it all ultimately points back to, you know, like it's, this is incredibly complicated. Like John Bolton could say, you know, I don't even want my royalties. Yeah. I just wanted to get this information out in the world. And if that's the case, and I don't know that it is, like, I don't know. What I his don't believe that is. for a second. Two million uh, yeah. Is yeah. I don't either. Cause employee. I was going to, say right like if that were the case then why wait for a book yeah, deal right. um like this goes back to one of my current favorite things to be upset about which is publishers rewarding folks in the government and incentivizing them to wait for a book deal to release the kinds of information that if we had them earlier more kind more action could be taken around it yeah um, yeah so yeah. yeah i mean you could see a version of some law that doesn't violate the first amendment that when you take government office of any kind stipulates that you can write a book but all you know you forfeit all proceeds to some extent you know that that wouldn't necessarily that wouldn't be censorship necessarily but it might disincentivize the you know reap the rewards and then reap the mm-hmm. you know being in power and then getting a book deal for 2 million bucks after I, you know I don't think I would agree with that but I don't know that that would necessarily yeah. to my mind as a um, armchair, apparently now First Amendment watcher for this kind of thing. So they care <laughs> yeah. about this to some degree. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't, that doesn't preclude it. If if we're taking a, a pretty baseline understanding on this podcast, at least has been, if you're legally allowed to disseminate your text, mm-hmm. it's not really censorship, um, you know, at, at that point. So he's not being disallowed. The thing that's being challenged is your ability to profit on it, which is a completely mm-hmm. different thing, right? I yeah. Think. And I do want to say, because every now and then when we talk about these things, we get emails from people who are like, oh, but you guys would feel differently about this if we were talking about progressives. No. They're like, if there were folks inside the Obama administration that had damaging information and waited for their multi-million dollar book deals to reveal it rather than you know taking yeah. action or being a whistleblower, I would also be very upset about that. There was, I'll have to find it. I meant to put it in the show notes. It's paywalled, so I'm always hesitant to put in paywalled stuff mm-hmm. to talk about. Um, a writer at the New York Times, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, did sort of a, uh, not sort of, did she, an overview of like the Trump books, like the big Trump books, the, the people that were in the White House and then have written books. You know, there's eight of them now and sort of, Oh wow! I haven't read but a few pages of any of them, to be honest, because I, I, I was afraid of the exact, exact, now I can't remember her name, but I'm going to... Uh, pretend that I remember exact phrasing, but her general sense was that she just felt gross after reading them all. Right? Just that, <laughs> what is that? Totally surprise, believable. Right? Believable, right? That that would fit my mental model of how these things happen. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly where to put this on the. I think these edge cases are kind of interesting to think about. It helps clarify my own thinking. Frankly, do I think mm-hmm. this is censorious? 
getting the royalties back? No. I think it does play into a larger threateningness and sort of intimidation to yeah. some degree. But if the intimidation never works, then it's really intimidation. I, I don't know where to where to fall um, in that. Though, on the other hand, I guess all it would take is one victory, right? All it would take is sort of one $250 billion fine of a major publisher, and mm-hmm. these would all go away, presumably. We get one new precedent, so it's not one of those situations where it can't ever change. Um, this sort of a gambler's fallacy thing to say, well, it's always been this way, so it will be this way forever. Um, on the other hand, you have to take history into context somehow. So those two yeah, things are true know, at like, the same time. As you were saying that, I was thinking like the white hot center of, I guess, the potential for this to be effective is the intersection of explosive information that the Trump administration doesn't want to get out with the publishing industry's overall failure to do really good fact checking yeah, in nonfiction right. books. Yeah. And hopefully there hopefully there's a lot of fact checking going on with a book at this level and a lot of scrutiny applied. But like if there's a chance for one of these suits to succeed, it's for a book like this to come out with something that's demonstrably false in mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. then everybody's over the barrel. Yeah, and I, I guess I don't, I don't know enough about the, the sort of um, the libel law. Can you libel the government? I don't know the answer to that. Is that something that's, you know, actionable? Anyway, um, I know there's lawyers out there. Please keep your answers in podcastofbookriot.com to 4,000 <laughs> words or less. Um, I, I would appreciate that. All right, let's move on, but let's do a sponsor first. Um, on the PRH side, COVID-adjusted book and digital audio terms for libraries to the end of the year. Basically, lo- the loosening of the ebook and digital terms that libraries have enjoyed of late is going to continue th- to December 31st, 2020. I don't think that date means anything except they'll reevaluate nope. when the new yep. fiscal mm-hmm. year starts, um, just like how my kids aren't technically aren't in school um, through November 5th. That November Fimpeth is just the end of the quarter, and they will reassess, reassess later. Um, this is our best guess for now, that the next time we'll have to make a decision will come before December 31st, 2020, is all I would read this as. Um, open yep. license for online story time and read all videos. This includes that. Um, the option to license ebooks and digital audio for one-year terms at 50% the prorated price alternative to the existing two-year term. Basically, a little bit a cost per circulation model is also available. Basically, cutting the prices mm-hmm. um, for libraries and extending the license term for online story times and read aloud videos. I wonder if there's the. I think those library terms will go back to something more like they were. The open license for online story time feels like something hard to roll back to me. Like on on our yeah vaccine plus three month day, whatever that is, <laughs> V plus three day. Um, are they going to be like you know what guys? It's time right. to roll in those libraries online stories. It just feels weird <laughs> that they're going to do that. Am I wrong? No, I, I don't think you're wrong. And I also think that it will make sense to continue offering it because it, it seems like, you know, this extension is in response to the fact that like this pandemic is lasting longer mm-hmm. than companies than anybody, but then companies anticipated when they initiated like COVID adjusted terms for things. And this PRH one is just an example of those, but like in the vaccine plus three months and your V plus three mm-hmm. formulation, I think there are still folks who aren't going to be comfortable going to the library Absolutely for a while not. or aren't going to be comfortable going out to like, you know, 
non-essential group gatherings for a while. So I think we're going to be seeing these like virtual story times and virtual author events and things of that nature for a long time after this. Um, Mm -hmm. They might be a permanent fixture. Like on a related note, I know like some indie bookstores are seeing a lot of success doing virtual author events and they're getting attendees from all over the country and authors that they wouldn't normally get because those authors don't like live in their part of the country and wouldn't be traveling. And so there are some opportunities that are being opened up when you're not limited by geography in that way or in the case of libraries like you're not limited by having to like be able to go to the library or be comfortable going to the library so i i agree it would be hard to roll back and i also think that it'd be you know less likely to try to roll that one back um I fully anticipate that when we get to December and they're looking at their next fiscal year, we're going to see this, you know, extended um, for some time into um, 2021 as well. So I took it off. I had I, you have to trust me, Internet podcast <laughs> listeners, Scouts Honor. I had on my list for the next half baked ideas was for libraries to live stream their children's events to like mm. nursery, like to daycares and schools and other things like that. It's like, what you know, they can't get there for whatever reason. It wouldn't be hard to live stream on YouTube or whatever. And I even noted, but you might have a rights problem. I don't even know what the rights are for reading alouds in the building You know, prior to this. I don't have any sense of what fair use is considered in that situation. But it makes sense to me. Like if you've got a daycare full of kids and your local library is doing a 10 a.m. story time, why not live? I mean, or I know why not in terms of the technology, but that seemed to be, you, you could multiply your potential audience by a lot. It would be a lot of mm-hmm. fun or kids that are at school or they're homesick for the day or their parents work from home or their parent. You know, there's a lot of reasons that a kid can't get into a library for a story time at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday that they could be in front of their iPad or with their parents on a phone or some other situation where, you know, you could make the 10 or 12 people and parents in that room 200 pretty quickly a lot of times. And, you know, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen a big children's publisher like Scholastic do something Mm. like this for a long-term situation. And maybe it's that the idea of the long-term is really just starting to settle in in a meaningful way because several publishers have done like one or two day online festivals, but you could see a children's publisher and I would love to see somebody do this set up like, you know, a couple story times a week, each one with a different one of their big authors and then sell like a season pass to it, Mm. Um, which you can, that's an almost fully baked idea. Yeah. It's not bad. If you work for a children's publisher, you're welcome to it. Well, Um, and one, one situation right now is that librarians haven't been in the buildings a lot of times or if they are, they're doing backlogs and trying right. to jury read yeah. pickups. So and I would, I can imagine right now they're not really yeah, set for, up to do additional services. But you know. yeah, for libraries, I totally get it. But like for a publisher that has a bunch of you know children's authors and everybody is stuck at home with their you know their personal Zoom setup, mm-hmm. a different a different author like Tuesday and Thursday mornings for twelve weeks, sell a season pass, sell them as one offs. You know, let yeah, your kids... have them be a subscription that your local library can sign up for. I don't yeah, know. It's yeah. There's a lot of possibilities there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So um, feel free to continue reading at least PRH titles online. Allow, don't record them, don't sell them, blah, blah, blah. We, if, we, if we manage this resource right, we might have expanded. You know, this is one of the situations where it's hard to know what uh, temporary um, evasive maneuvers that we're collectively doing are going to stick. But mm-hmm. something about expanded online dissemination of library events seems like I would put that in my top echelon of things that may have legs. Uh, yeah, I think so. 
Uh, let's see here. I, I have. There's not really much to say about this, and I, I don't remember Oprah ever doing this before. Um, but there's a story in CNN about how Oprah sent 500 CEOs and leaders copies of Cast, which is uh, Isabel um, Wilkerson's new book that just came out. I'm looking at a hard copy right now. Mm-hmm. I got a hard copy for day one. I'm really excited to read it. Dwight Garner gave it a glowing sort of epochally great review uh, in the New York Times. Oprah's very excited about it. The timing couldn't be more pointed, useful. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how else to use it. Um, it's a 10-year project for her after Warmth of Other Sons, which also I think was a generational kind of a work. Um, I've been really excited to see this for all times. And she looks at, you know, cast as an idea um, and an implementation, but also as a way of understanding social systemic, not not just racism, but bias, right? Sometimes it's about race in America. Sometimes it's about caste is not a word we tend to use in America, but we, more familiar to me as a, a term used in India um, for a social a social order there, but using bringing together these kind of social orders, biases, prejudices, racism, other kinds of bias, under sort of a, a more of a unified theory of oppression, mm-hmm. um, of which race in America, especially against black uh, racism against black people, is a manifestation and understanding blackness and black oppression in the context of wider sociological uses of caste systems is not a framing I've ever heard before, and I'm really hoping to, to get you know into it soon and um, talk about it. So uh, I don't know if this is going to work. You know, I don't know if any one of these people will pick it up. Um, I guess the excuse is I've never heard of this book. Maybe it goes away because there's one from Oprah on your right. desk. Uh, so I don't know. It's fascinating <laughs> to see. I, did you remember if she's done this before? I, I, I don't. Couldn't rem- you know. I couldn't remember either if she's done something like this before. And I was thinking, you know, like, I had the same, like, will any of them actually mm. read it? But then I kind of got to the, I brenade my place in, in our mm. uh, colloquialism of, like, a first I rip and then I brenade. <laughs> yes. um, I brenade myself into if one CEO yeah. out of these 500 reads this, it was worth all the dollars that Oprah spent to buy 500 copies of it and then some if it makes a difference in, like, the structure of you know, one big corporation um, or, you know, one state. She sent it to governors, you know, like – Folks need to be reading this book. Um, governors and mayors and CEOs and college professors are among the um, the 500 people that she sent it to. And like, if if one or two of those folks read this book and it contributes to making a a difference, you know, like I think it's totally worth it. And I'm just going to be hopeful. You know, like Richmond is a Richmond city is a predominantly black city. We have a black mayor. We have a lot of problems with how race is handled, even in a our predominantly black city with a lot of black people's working in the government. Um, and I think investigations like this that provide big lenses and big frameworks for all of us um, to be understanding what these systems are and how we are harmed by them and harmful within them. Um, like more is better. Let's keep going. As a purveyor and connoisseur, um, a member and the president of a, <laughs> of a club who very much likes metaphors, um, for understanding things. Wilkerson has a really nice one here. I think, at least it spoke to me, unsurprisingly, because I like mm-hmm. this kind of thing. I present our country as an old house. And when you have an old house, you know that there's always work to be done on it. And, af- and then after a rain, you do not want to go into that basement sometimes because you don't want to know what you might face there. But whatever is there, you're going to have to deal with it. Whether you yep. wish to or not, it's going to be there and you have to deal with it. It's, you know, it's pretty elegant. Um, 
unsurprisingly elegant for Wilkerson. I, I yeah, I've, I've been, um, I think this works out as like very good accidental publication timing for Isabel Wilkerson. Yes, yes. Um, and I've been working my way intentionally slowly through Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. And I feel like Cast is going to be a great follow on mm. to that. Like a good, that's a one, a good one, two punch of where did all these ideas come from and how did we build this house um, yeah. that we're living in? So, uh, Speaking of things that um, I'd recommend you read, um, Nicole Dennis-Ben interviewed Dana, Dana Kennedy, uh, who we talked about on a previous show mm -hmm. as going to take over as a publisher of Simon Schuster, Schuster, the first black woman to do so. She was previously on the Pulitzer board. A pretty short Q&A. There's not a lot there because, mm -hmm. you know, Canada hasn't started the job. Mm -hmm. um, so outside of things you I guess, I guess you would put on your bingo board or your family feud cell you'd guess some things like you want a, a you know a different range of books and make sure black people and women and women of color are represented not only in the workforce but in the titles i guess not only in the titles but in the workforce says there i think the thing that struck me about the did you read this by the way mm -hmm. this yeah 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 mm -hmm. i think the thing that struck me about kennedy here she seems extremely at ease you know it's a it's a colloquial interview it's it's like clearly not edited it wasn't written by email it, it seems like it was right. done by voice over zoom yeah. or something else which i always like for these kinds of things to see a transcript because i think it tells you some things that email responses but she seems extremely comfortable um with the task at hand um dennis ben was like are you nervous or anything she's like no <laughs> no <laughs> not really yeah i've got work to do i've got documents to read uh i'm gonna go do it and so I, I guess that was the piece. I didn't have any sense of Kennedy before. You know, I don't, personality, you, you don't know anything about this, but there was a comfort level with stepping into a new position and wanting to think of it proactively as a change move for you and the organization, but also to be comfortable with that in the way that she expresses that comfort, I think is really fascinating and, and welcome. Um, I don't know. That, that was my one kind of note. It felt warm and comfortable, but also proactive, which is a very difficult trick to pull off, I guess, is what I, I, I find myself struck by. Yeah, it's very different from a lot of like brand new CEO memo yeah, kinds of things that yes. you get that are like, and or the things that presidential candidates say that they're going to do in their first hundred days, you know, like mm -hmm. the long lists of promises and all the things that are going to be changed. And I think this is an example of you know, professional maturity and a lot of experience. You sure. know, that she's she's done a lot of things. She's run the Pulitzer. Um, she's been a black woman high up in organizations that are not predominantly black for a long time. So like coming to running Simon and Schuster in this way is like, it's a different job, but it's not the first time that she's thought about these questions of how do you diversify an organization and how do you create better representation? And, um, I think that she really gets into that. And in, in her answer to one of the questions where Nicole Dennis Ben asks her, like, do you feel any pressure or overwhelmed by the responsibility of being that one to diversify the industry? And she's like, Oh gosh, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> like right. that happens with God's grace and my old career and so many roles. Um, like, like she has done this before. She's used to doing mm -hmm. this kind of work. And I, I appreciated that she says, you know, I consider it an honor. And she's not saying she doesn't feel responsibility for it, but she's not overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Um, and that's what I want in somebody leading, like leading anything, you know, mm -hmm. like you want someone who's like, I've done this before. I know what I'm doing. I know how to approach this work. I'm up for it. Let's go. The one specific kind of descriptor she gave to the kinds of books she's interested in she says, I want us to have books inside Simon & Schuster and inside the industry that mm -hmm. really defy categories. 
I don't quite know what that means. I don't know if that's a is that a critique of the categories that exist or I guess maybe a, a transcendence of those cat or you know the, or not transcendence even but a some other subversion of those kinds of categories. This isn't saying that I'm going to acquire the same kind of books and call them different things. You know, put them right. in different categories. It's really they <laughs> they defy existing extant categories, which is actually quite a bit more revolutionary of an idea than it, I think it first appears to be. Because publishing, we know this because we work in this, and adver- a lot of publishing depends on categories to give readers and book buyers and booksellers information about the kind of book they're signing up for. Books are very hard to preview. There's no you know good equivalent like a movie trailer. So instead, we use categories or read-alikes or it's um, gone girl for fans of The Martian kind of a situation, <laughs> which is essentially like blending categories through specificity. But that really defy categories. Uh, she, and then she goes, I don't want to be too specific yet because I'm still sort of thinking about what I mean by that. And I have a few ideas of the books I want to acquire in the first month that I think fit into that category. So it sounds like she's already got a shopping list, which I think is awesome. Mm-hmm. But the shopping list is about defying categories. And I'm now I'm now even more interested to see what the list her list is going to look like in the next six months because I don't, I don't have a good idea of what that is. Yeah, I don't either. And I'm really curious about it. I was thinking, like wondering... I don't know, noodling on this as like often the books, especially by black authors and folks of color are categorized as like, this is the book, like these are the books by and for black people. And publishing does really love to have like very sort of pigeonholed imprints about things. Like I think you and I have even talked about like, what would happen if a publishing house just gave up the concept of imprints and just published books that it thought were good. Mm. (laughs) And would make money. Um, And so maybe she's going for some of that too, like in the same way of like not every book by a black author has to be about the struggle or has to be about blackness. How do we get beyond, like, how do we get beyond the ways that these categories or labels constrain how we think about books and constrain the audience that um, that they can reach, I think would be super interesting. Yeah, this almost suggests that the categories are are constraining the books themselves, not just or only Mm, the readers, mm -hmm. which is... Um, really fascinating. And you get to a point where, you know, I've been reading long enough and reading and thinking about books and the publishing industry for long enough too. I could be um, victim of have, you know, an anchored mental model to, to mix my conisms there a little bit. Um, and maybe it's a, maybe it's a reframing of a marketing existing title. Maybe there really are different, you know, there are books out there um, that are ready to be acquired that don't neatly fit into a category we understand. I know like FSG and MCD have done some interesting work um, and and explicitly experimental. I think some of those books could have fit into other categories and some of them are more difficult, but like, you know, the fiction memoir troubling is interesting. Auto fiction is a memoir is a fiction is a little bit of both. Is it neither? I think that's one Mm -hmm. that could, there's probably a lot of room to move in that area is one that jumped to mind too. mixed media kinds of stuff. I don't really know, but um, it, it was a, the first time I'd seen yeah, her be interviewed on this topic, and I was really encouraged, um, even more so than I was coming into this. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be a really fun and interesting career move to follow. And, you know, like there are, I think we've probably both heard stories of like authors getting their book deal or like being in the works with their agent, trying to get a book deal and hearing like, 
well, we need to like tighten this up or narrow it down. Like the book is trying to do too many things or it's not easily right. summed up in an elevator pitch. And so like, you know, like one whole arm of the book gets cut off so that it becomes something that has a cleaner slug line that's better mm-hmm. for marketing. But maybe the book itself would have been better with the whole thing. It'll be, I think, awesome for both of us and for the whole industry really to be able to see what she's going to bring in. And I'm personally very excited that she already has this shopping list because I hope it'll be like day one of the new gig here is the, here's the deal that, um, that she's going to make. I think, um, on a related note, uh, Harlequin, two imprints at Harlequin, Graydon House and HQN Books, um, are accepting unagented manuscripts from black writers up through Mm. September 8th of 2020 and Inky Yard Press is accepting submissions until August 31st, um, as well as the month of March 2021. Uh, So if you are a Black writer who's looking to be published and you don't have an agent, um, you still have an opportunity to submit your work to these Harlequin imprints. We will have a link to those in the show notes, and it does have the description of what each of those uh, imprints does. But just very quickly, Graydon House is hardcover and trade paperback dedicated to publishing book club-worthy women's fiction with commercial appeal. So books that sell. That's books that sell, Books that sell. Yes, that is. Yeah, that is definitely code for books that sell. sell. (laughs) The imprint of Make It Rain. Mm -hmm. Um, HQN Books uh, has defined romance by publishing the best in mainstream bestseller romance by the finest authors in the field. So if you've got a romance, HQN Books is your one to be looking at. Um, And Inkyard publishes smart, engaging YA fiction across a variety of genres from realistic contemporary all the way to epic fantasy. Um, And they are passionate about publishing diverse voices. So three cool opportunities there to have your manuscript in front of editors for consideration at these different Harlequin imprints. Um, Again, we'll have that link in the show notes. But um, if you are submitting, may your efforts succeed. We talk about this a lot. um, And this is an important choke point to to recognize Mm -hmm. is there's a lot of there's a lot of gates to publishing books and reading be, being inclusive in a way that's not currently in one that goes under inspected, I think largely because it's, it's an sort of an ad hoc um, range of people involved is the agenting piece. Of oh, yeah. How many agents are black? What percentage are black? Um, what do the acceptances versus um, rejections on the agent level? Hap- how does that happen along race and gender and different kinds of identities as well? And, I think most of us would guess that a lot more of it probably happens than we would suspect. Even if we suspect a lot is happening, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, that we might be off by an order of magnitude. And this is one way of saying, okay, we will take that gatekeeping function away or at least lessen it for a time for these particular moments and voices um, and do some more of the work ourselves, especially for black authors, rather than basically outsource the work of prospecting largely right. to agents um, who have their own motivations and their own constraints. And I don't think agents are any more you know, prejudiced than anybody else, but their systemic problems probably look different in ways I don't fully appreciate than publishing itself or readers or other things like that. So I, I think looking at where the choke points are, how you can get more voices, more authors, deals, and paid um, this is certainly one worth exploring. I, I would, I would. This thing happens so fast. I'd like to know, at some point, what books get 
put on a shelf somewhere that you can buy because of a process like this. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, we've seen things like this before, have, yeah. and Harlequin might have even done this before. Um, I know we saw some publishers do this during the sort of first big wave of we need diverse voices, um, we need diverse books, but there's never follow up. Like, I'm sure that they're. That somebody is accepting some of these unagented manuscripts and publishing them, but it's are never you like sure? It. That's very that's very Brene of you. I'm less Brene about that. I mean, it could be, but I also oh man, that, you know, it's possible I'm, nothing came of you're, it. You're right. Uh, I think I wanted to assume that like if they were doing all of these and then not accepting any of them, someone on the inside would have blown the whistle. But that's not a that's not a correct assumption. I'm not sure I'd take that prior with me to the future <laughs> if I, if it were me. Were I don't me. I don't like this, but you're no, right. No, I know. Anyway, uh, so go check that out. Pass yeah. that around. Another thing to pass around. Um, Authors for Black Voices Online is doing an auction to support publishing and literacy nonprofits. I'll put a link in the show notes there, authorsforblackvoices.org, some good stuff there. We've got to do one more sponsor and then a, and a few more stories when we come back. Uh, kind of. So Stephanie Meyer, not my cup of tea. I'm sure she's a fine person, just not the books I'm interested in. But, but here's the thing. Ste- everything Stephanie Meyer does, I'm surprised by. The Twilight <laughs> thing is surprising, right? That, 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 that thing being a huge – I'm surprised uh-huh. by um, going back and rewriting the trilogy from the other point of view, same story, just from a different point of view, completely surprised by. And embarking on a book tour during a pandemic to support the trilogy written from the other point of view, also very surprising. Uh, I'm not sure what else. I wouldn't do this. I, you know, I wouldn't have done any of these. But also, Stephanie Meyer can like um, show me how wrong I am by her giant pool of money uh, when it comes down to this sort of thing. Just kind of surprising. You put this in here, there. Yeah. And that was mine's like... Here's another thing that I would never have do that Stephanie Meyer is doing. Like, and it, I'm betting wrong on Stephanie Meyer's <laughs> uh, activity, it looks like. So far. Me too. You know, her book tour, is it drive-in theaters? Like they're doing socially distanced Q&As sure. and people hang. Like so Stephanie Meyer and Garth Brooks are touring in the same format this year, which is bonkers yeah. to me. And the, re- the real thing I was thinking about when I put this in the agenda is that like, you know, 10 years ago when Twilight, Harry Potter, and The Hunger Games were mm, all at like mm. the height of their frenzy. If you had asked me, all right, Rebecca, like 10 years in the future, which of these three authors is still going to be like touring and, yeah. and being like, you know, excitedly received by fans. And also it's going to be the middle of a pandemic. Stephanie Meyer would have been the third on the list. Like I, would not have guessed it was it was her. Um, so I guess that follows along with everything that she does is surprising. <laughs> and I'm wrong about. I guess. I mean, yeah. this pri- no, taking my priors. If I George could stands it and, and pick the opposite of the outcome <laughs> I expect, this is going to be a wild success, and people will copy it. You know. Uh huh. Probably. Uh-huh. I mean, this, the drive-in theater situation. It's a creative workaround. Yeah. Um, and her readers. You know, folks that were into the Twilight books when they were teenagers are adults now. There were lots of adults who loved the books when they first came mm. out and are still adults and following the career. Um, I think that Midnight Sun might, I think it's maybe going to have some legs. Like if ever we needed a big, just like gossipy escapist work of fiction, it's probably in the middle of this pandemic. Um, and in the story I was most delighted by, I'm so glad you put this in there because I saw this story. I'm like, ah, this is, no one's going to care about this, but I'm I, so glad that you did put this I in I really just wanted to hear you talk about it. Yeah. So John Boyne, um, who I guess was most famous for the boy in the striped pajamas, which was made into a movie, 
has a new book out called The Traveler at the Gates of Wisdom, which is uh, you'll find out an ironical uh, a title here in a minute. Um, apparently, uh, in, in the research that authors do, authors don't know everything, and he's telling this time-traveling story, which goes across time and space. I mean, good luck. You can't be an expert in everything. Um, in the book, someone's trying to make dye for clothes, red dye. And in the book, the description of the ingredients needed for that red dye is spicy peppers, the tail of a red lizolfo, and four hylian shrooms. Which, the, okay, spicy pepper, we all know. The other two things no one has ever heard of. Those are ingredients that you need in the game Legend of Zelda Breath in the Wild to make red dye to color your clothes. <laughs> I know this because not only did the, the um, uh, story point to it, but my son Ames and I have been playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild every day for about four months now, for, for about an hour <laughs> a day together at the end of the day. And it looks like Boyne, in looking what are the ingredients for red dye, Googled ingredients for red dye, and because everyone was Googled, you know, searching for how to make red dye in Zelda, this popped up, and somehow he didn't scan it that it was a completely fictional thing <laughs> made by Nintendo, and it showed up in this book. I find this absolutely human and delightful to see this Same. here. Anyway. Same. I love this. You can totally imagine how it happens. Yes. You know, like he's sitting there Googling how to make red dye, and he probably got that big, like the big pop-up box at yes. the top of yes, Google yes, yes, that yes. shows you the result of the most common thing. Like he may not have even had to click to open before he saw mm -hmm. the red lizalfos and for it. Hylian mushrooms and was just like all right that must be what you do <laughs> here you go like who among us has not unquestioningly unquestioningly taken a google answer to a thing and then turned out to be wrong um i saw some of our contributors discussing like that there have been other issues with deeper things that maybe boyne has not done great research oh. about and i did not have time to get into mm. the depth of that um as just on like a human note of probably funny like i actually i would read a whole like big roundup of these like if a bunch of authors wanted to get together and out themselves like funny things writers googled that ended up in their books that are actually wrong um i think would be very entertaining but this especially like it's on the agenda because of you and legend of zelda <laughs> yeah it's so. you know I, it's funny because you're right like i'm sure it was that Again, we've all done stuff like this, right? We misunderstood mm -hmm. something. Google's trying to be too smart. You know, probably most people sh searching for red dye ingredients actually were looking for Legend of Zelda. There are more people trying to dye their clothes red in Legend of Zelda than the real world. So for most right. people, this is probably the right answer. I think what's funny is this is not a fantasy novel. It's supposed to be historical fiction. Mm -hmm. I guess, did, did the, the phrase red Lizolfo, like what is a, did that not, I guess you must have <laughs> thought that's just some animal I've never heard of. It's just some like kind of lizard. Sure. Is yeah, what I would okay. have assumed. Like yeah. okay, a lizolfos, okay. it's just some like species of lizard, sure. It's so it's so fun. And that spicy peppers went into red dye is weird. I, again, clearly it wasn't a second order of what is this? It was I need <laughs> to find what red dye is and put it in there. Um Boyne said he was embarrassed so his editor, but he would not be changing it, but would add Zelda to the acknowledgement page. <laughs> um, despite never really having funny. played a computer game in his life. So the, I guess this is one of those unknown unknowns. He didn't even think that there was yeah. a possibility that there were these seemingly detailed ingredient lists for completely <laughs> fictional processes. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, the equivalent of Googling, like, 
Googling a plumber and Mario and Luigi showing up at your yes, house and yes. you, you not knowing the difference. <laughs> yeah, right. That, that's a really good example. And I wanted this Mario plumbing service. They seem very popular. <laughs> Mar- these Mario brothers. All right. That's our show. As always, bookriot.com backslash listen to find show notes to the stories we talked about today. If you've got, if you've got some shouts for your favorite um, summer reading that you've done, podcast at bookriot.com. Dot com. Uh, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next week. All right. Have a good one.